0: Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio.
1: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Nick Hill. I'm a mortgage agent. I'm a real estate investor, and I am joined by my good friend, the one and only Daniel Foch. How's it going, buddy?
0: I'm good. I'm really glad we just did that interview. Actually, it was interesting to have StatCan, Statistics Canada, reach out to us and send us, I guess, basically like talking points for members of the community who share a lot of data. So they basically wanted us to help, you know, promote the information that they've gathered from last year's census. And, you know, we were back and forth with them. We were, if you follow me on social media, you know, I've shared a lot of the infographics that they've put out. But I was like, why don't we have a conversation about this? And so they, decided yeah like we'd love to come on the podcast and so we had them on we did this interview and I actually learned a lot. We talk a lot about, you know, what purpose-built rental, homeownership rates, rentership rates, what's happening with renters income and these are all like they're really high-level very macro indicators for investors like us, but they're really interesting and if you dive in more into The link that we've shared in the show notes. They actually have tables showing like which cities have the highest percentage of new construction being rented. As an example, these are all really good leading indicators for or or indicators of what area you might want to invest in as a, a real estate investor in Canada.
1: Yeah, totally. Well said. I mean, if you listen to this show, if you don't listen to this show, then you know whatever. But if you do listen to this show, you know that we're all about data, right? That's what we love. We love looking to the data and looking at what the data is telling us. And that's how Dan and I have been able to make a lot of great investing decisions. So yeah, it was, it was awesome. I mean, obviously stats, Canada, they, they produce a whole lot of statistics. So yeah, I mean, they were formed in 1971. They're the government agency that is commissioned with producing statistics to help better understand Canada, its population, its resources, its economy, society, and culture, they're headquartered in Ottawa. So we did speak a lot about Ottawa, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal. But there is data about every province, every city. So go check it out. There is a ton of good stuff in there. But before we get to the interview, we have a couple other things we wanted to talk about. One of them being old Tiff Macklem's good buddy down south, Mr. Jerome Powell. Seems to be really leading the charge here, Dan, with the Fed. I mean, if, and again, this is one of those things that... If you have any realtors on social media, you probably heard about the next two articles we're gonna talk about, or the next two pieces of information we're gonna talk about. The first being that the Fed raised its rate by another 0.75 or seventy five bips, putting it at the highest rate since two thousand and eight. Good year for
0: real estate. <laughs> so and you know, it's interesting as well because a lot of people like now we're lagging the Fed, right? We're at three point seven five and they're at over or they're at four hundred. So You know, a lot of people have mentioned early on saying, oh, you know, we might actually see Canada destroy the currency a little bit, be comfortable with that and actually take inflation as a cost of doing business, let's call it, to strengthen the long term prospects of immigration, make it more economical for people. You know, imagining that most people are immigrating here in the settlement currency of U.S. dollars, give them a little bit more buying power to get into Canada. And and make stretch their their dollar the economics of them moving here. And I actually I, I never really that argument never really exceptionally resonated with me. But then I gradually was thinking, okay, well maybe we'll see. But policy policymakers try and push or put a floor in to the housing market, and it sounds like that's sort of what they're doing with or what they're trying to do. Not not so much with the monetary policy with the interest rate. I think that we will see. You know, Canada try to get closer to what the Fed is doing. But with the immigration target, you know, along the lines of what I just mentioned, we're now talking about a goal of bringing in 500,000 people in 2025. So Immigration Minister Sean Fraser revealed the new targets on Tuesday, uh, November 1st, basically saying that this is necessary to ensure Canada's economic prosperity. And people are talking about how this is massively bullish for Canadian real estate. I, I would tend to agree with them. And I think the MPs that voted on this policy would agree as well you know, there was actually a news of a DM that was actually sent to it, an analyst, Ben Rabidou who I follow. And he mentioned that it was actually partially motivated by trying to put a floor in the housing market in Canada, putting us, keeping us in that state of excess demand, more people to buy houses than there are houses to buy, more people to rent houses than there are units to rent. Is that the law of supply and
1: command? Is that what that Something is? Something like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I, you know, immigration is a great thing. Canada is is a massive country we've already talked about this on the show in some of our land-based episodes we have got a ton to offer here and uh, you know immigration is a great thing for us my one thing is where are they going to go and are we going to be able to you know address the labor shortage to house all these new people and i think dan we've we've spoken enough about it what we're going to put out an episode about the labor shortage, the labor market, and how it affects housing and the CMHC projections on the amount of homes we need to build. It just keeps on coming up in, in these sidebar conversations. So let's buckle down and put an episode together for that one. I did want to go back before we move on to our interview piece here and just touch on the interest rate. So if we're lagging the Fed, does this ensure that we break the Canadian
0: streak of not having an interest rate hike in December? What's your thought? I feel like there's really two outcomes here, right? It's like you pick recession or inflation and I don't think they're going to choose inflation. Like I think they've made that clear. I don't know what their motivation was for not going 75 bips last month, but I think that, yes, absolutely. I would be very surprised if we didn't. I mean, if you just look at the historics, we move in lockstep with the Fed. I would be very surprised if, if Canada didn't hike in December of this year.
1: Agreed. Okay. Let's move on to the interview. We were lucky enough to be joined today by Jeff Randall, who is a senior analyst responsible for the housing subject matter analysis and data products and was kind of the lead guy on the 2021 census. So obviously we know a lot has changed since then. Data and stats take time to put together and Jeff and his team are currently working on new data every day for us to consume. But this was our discussion with Jeff on the 2021
0: census, and we hope you enjoy it. Okay, so we're joined here today by Jeff Randall from Statistics Canada. Jeff, I understand that you basically wrote a report, but also did a lot of research on housing affordability and the housing market in Canada. Could you summarize the findings they outlined in the daily and what they mean for Canada's housing market? Yeah, so just uh, at the onset on September 21st,
2: Statistics Canada released new data from the 2021 census. These data focused on Indigenous peoples in Canada, as well as the housing of Canadians. And so some of the things that we, the storylines that we brought forward in that particular analytical article were the changes in home ownership that we've seen over the last decade. And how these changes in home ownership are reflected in the construction patterns, the growth in rental markets that we see and population growth in different areas of the country, particularly downtown cores. We also focused in on changes in the values of dwellings and how these changes in values were different in different parts of the country. The prairies were different from Ontario and Quebec and other areas as well. Then we also wanted to focus in on this story that looked at how incomes had changed for renters and for owners over the five-year period since the last census, and compare that to how the shelter costs have changed. And with these two measures of income and shelter costs, which are the monthly payments for housing that households pay, we can derive the indicator of housing affordability, which according to the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, the threshold is set at 30% or more of the income being spent towards their shelter costs. That's considered to be unaffordable housing. So we see how the the way that the pandemic benefits were impacted people's incomes, particularly renters, changed the levels of unaffordable housing that we're seeing for these people in Canada.
1: Yeah, let's talk about housing affordability. So housing affordability is measured, interestingly, in the context of renters' costs, So given that we're speaking to an audience of existing or aspiring landlords, our listeners care about a tenant's ability to pay rent, but also the potential longevity of them as tenants. So what percentage of renters
2: couldn't qualify for a mortgage and how much are their incomes changing? That's an interesting question. It's not one that we focus on answering in this daily article per se. But if you look at at the time that the census was conducted, the interest rates were, were quite low and you could do a fact check on it. But I believe at the time, we the Bank of Canada hadn't begun raising rates, so it was around a quarter of a percent. So people applying for a mortgage typically would have faced the, the stress test as a constraint for assessing how much they could borrow. But when we look at the median income for renters in Canada, I believe it was $55,000. Let me scroll to it so that I get it right. It was around 55000 in 2021, whereas for owners, it was $102,000 in, in 2020. Sorry, And so that level of income, and remember the median, half of renters earn below it and half of renters earn above it, but $50,000... $50, in many places across Canada, the average value of a home is 10 or more times that amount, right? And so, you know, anybody earning that amount it would have would have trouble finding a dwelling to purchase, you know, particularly if they were looking in Ontario or in Toronto or Vancouver or, or Ottawa, some of these places where the values of dwellings are higher.
0: In that respect, I think that we we did actually see homeownership decline in a number of Canadian cities. I think it was all but ones that were measured in the community toolkit that was sent out from StatsCan. Do you have information on, on sort of what changes happen in the homeownership rate and what the data is on that? So one of the things that we have to remember
2: uh, when we're looking at a rate and measuring the change in a rate from one period to the next is that the rate is a slice of a pie, right? And so while home ownership, the home ownership rate has gone down in Canada and that slice has become a bit more narrow, the size of the pie is much larger, right? And so what we saw in 2021 was a record high in the number of homeowners. There, So we have more homeowners in Canada than we ever did before. But since the last census or over the 10-year period, we, I like to look at it from the 10-year perspective because that's how you can, you know, you really see construction's trends unfold over a decade. So over this 10-year period, the growth in the number of renter households, more than outpaced the growth in owner households by more than two and a half times, right? And so when you have this scenario where there are much more renter households being created than there are owner households, you see a shift in the rate. But that's not to say that there are fewer people owning their home today than there were
0: before. Right. Excellent distinction. I think statistically, the growth in renter households was like 21.5%, I believe. Then the growth in owner households was about 8.4% for our listeners there. Um, Nick, did you want to jump into the next one here? We talk a lot about the word generational has now become synonymous with with real estate, right? With generational
1: homes, generational families living in in homes, right? We've we've started to see laneway suites become and, and basement suites, in-law suites, they're they're called now. But what are the generational differences we are seeing in rental housing tenure between boomers and millennials? Let's let's look at that one for example.
2: Yeah. So one of the things that we covered in the article was looking at these 10-year age groups or these these age groups and saying, what did they look like 10 years ago in terms of how likely they were to own their dwelling? And we are seeing that the younger age groups today, when we compared them against their the same age group from 10 years ago, that they're less likely to own their home Okay. But this could be caused by a number of different factors. Yes, real estate prices or the cost of buying a home has gone up in a lot of places across the country, right? Not everywhere, but a lot of places. At the same time, we're seeing these younger generations, millennials, for example, representing the largest share of the population that lives in downtowns, right? So the primary downtown, you know, in Toronto, there's a, each census metropolitan area has The primary downtown. When we look at the downtowns, it is a lifestyle that is very much, you know, leaning towards renting, where about half of the the dwellings are rented, right? And so when you have, you know, a generation or or groups of any type of the population, whether it's based on age or some other characteristic, if they're, you know, in large numbers are choosing or are living in these types of areas where it's much more likely to be rented, you're going to see that reflected in the home ownership rate as well. I would also want to point out that millennials and some of these younger age generations are still at the period in their life where they haven't grown into the age range where we typically see the highest home ownership rates, right? So baby boomers now between or at the time of the census who were between about 55 and 75 years old, that's really what we've seen across all generations as the peak Homeownership years after seventy five, you start to see the home ownership rate decline again as people maybe choose to downsize or move into assisted living facilities or perhaps with other family members when where they need assistance as well.
1: So just to recap that, so essentially (laughs) everyone's pretty much guaranteed to well, most not guaranteed, but most people are looking pretty good to own a home between fifty five and seventy five. But for the average twenty five year old listening out
2: there, that's a long way to go. You know, 25-year-olds have perhaps never in the history of Canada been the, like, the age at which people were most likely to own their home, right? right? And this is typically because as you, you know, they're, they're maybe at the beginning of their careers. And as you get to 55, 60, 65, 70, you've perhaps, you know, had, you've had a life, you know, almost a whole life to acquire wealth, to accumulate assets. And that, you know, once you retire, that's when you start thinking about depleting your assets, right? And so that mm-hmm. could be in the form of selling your home. And we know for Canadians that the home is typically the largest asset that people have when they are homeowners. And so it's that idea that, you know, once you get to that age, you're most likely to own your home. That's not to say that there aren't 25-year-olds out there that don't own their home. is because there are. There are just fewer of them compared to that age group that boomers are now in.
1: And I think there's probably fewer of them living in Toronto and Vancouver than than elsewhere in the country.
0: (laughs) I think there is another... Part that was noted in the daily there that recently, like new homes were more, or they're being increasingly likely to be occupied by by renters and by millennials. Is there also an increase of what percentage of millennials are renters? I guess the you know the the, the broad conclusion. I won't ask you to draw a conclusion on it for investors here, but the one that I would potentially draw out of that is maybe we're heading towards more of a you know a renters economy, and so that you know you could predictably say, yeah, it's a good bet to be buying housing because you know you will have a predictable stream of renters coming.
2: Yeah. So two questions in there, right? You know, what's happening with millennials? Millennials today are more likely to own their homes than they were 10 years ago. You know, that's something that we're seeing. So more millennials are buying homes as they aged, right? And are becoming homeowners. So we see that home ownership rate rising. Now, at the same time, you know, when we look at the the new dwelling stock and you're right, the new stock is more likely to be occupied by millennials and the new stock is more likely to be occupied by renter households. We see this directly reflected in these 10-year construction trends, right? Where before, so one example is in the primary rental market. Okay, so this is the purpose-built rental market, apartment buildings, not condominiums, right? purpose-built rental units. So over the 20-year period before 2010, there was very little change in the, the overall stock of the primary rental market, changed by approximately about 14,000 units or something. Net units were added over that period. Since 2010 leading up to 2020, there were several hundred thousand that were added, right? And so we've seen there are more rental units that are available now as well. And over the 10-year period leading up to the census, we've also seen the construction of multi-dwelling buildings, so apartments, you know, low rises or high rises. The growth in that type of construction is now outpacing the construction trend, the construction growth in single detached homes, right? So, The construction industry is building more of these dwellings that lend themselves to renting, right? And that is what we see that reflected in the strong population growth in downtown, like Canada's downtowns, like the downtown of Toronto, the downtown of Vancouver, Montreal, Ottawa, where there is no space really to build outwards. And what you have left to do is to build
0: upwards. Yeah, yeah, absolutely and i think you mentioned in the in the daily there was also i mean we we are seeing you know what you're mentioning there a increasing trend of condominium construction but also you know notably some you know there are some cities in which and, and maybe a decent area for investors to be thinking about percentage of dwelling new dwellings built since 2016 that were rented was highest in a couple of cities i guess quebec halifax and montreal which you just mentioned right If the percent that were built there were condominiums, I'm not
2: sure if that statistic, I have it right in front of me.
0: I think it was just reading the daily here. Over 60% of new dwellings built since 2016 are rented in the cities of Quebec and Halifax, which I just thought was interesting. So proportion of new constructions occupied by renters was the highest in Quebec and Halifax.
2: Yeah, exactly. And so I think we're talking generally right now about sort of these national trends but when you get down to individual markets there are differences right and yeah. so you know you look at at cities like Quebec and Halifax they're not as large as as Toronto or or Montreal or Vancouver where you know there's been this type of construction that's been going on much longer than 10 years right much longer than 5 much longer than 10 you know toronto has been a city with with high rises for for decades now vancouver as well right and so i think you'll find the most number of condominiums in toronto and in vancouver in the country but as other cities start, you know, getting larger and they'll start catching up. And so you'll see the new construction trends reflecting, you know, the proportion of condominiums of the that are new builds being high, but they still have some catching up to do. I think some cities still have some catching up to do in terms of getting that overall total number of condominiums. Awesome.
0: I mean, this is excellent insight. I guess the the final question, is there is there any other StatCan data that you would recommend that's either you know that's coming out that people should stay tuned for, or you know that listeners, you know, understanding that it's mostly investors or people interested in purchasing home, owning real estate, if they wanted to get an understanding for where rents might be climbing, where homes might be becoming more affordable, where we're seeing an increase of construction, is there any good StatCan data that you could point people to? Yeah, I think, you know, maybe, maybe tying off the last bit about condominiums too is
2: that, you know, while condominiums are, are, Typically built for individual ownership. We see a lot of condominiums that are rented too, right? For sure. And so you talk, you know, this is a podcast for for real estate investors. You know, it is real estate investors who are buying condominiums and putting them up for rent on the secondary rental market, right? And while there's a lot of rented units in downtowns of these cities, a lot of these are are condominiums, right? So in when we looked at Toronto or Vancouver, Montreal, you know, more than half of the of the dwellings that are downtown are are condos but more than half of those condos are being rented as well so it's you Very know it's, we this story of renting is not just construction it's not just purpose-built rental market it's investors that are buying a condominium and and you, you know you or buying a condominium or buying a dwelling renting it out and using that to generate some income rental income and generate wealth for them in the long run too You also asked about what else new data might be coming out soon. I know there is another article that's going to be coming out from the census uh, sometime in the spring with no, no specific release date announced yet. But it is going to be looking specifically at the rents that are paid by recent movers and seeing how that differs perhaps from the rents that are being paid when controlling for, you know, number of bedrooms or the type of dwelling. Some people that were living in their dwelling from one to four years or five or more. And so that could give us a, a glimpse of, you know, maybe how the, the rent levels are changing and that, you know, when you have a, a median rent or an average rent for a, a city center that, you know, the people who are moving right now might not be facing the same prices as people who lived there for a long time.
0: Excellent insight. Thanks a lot for your time, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Nick, did you have anything else you wanted to add before we wrapped up here? No,
1: I I just wanted to touch quickly on, and we can, we'll we'll talk about this and maybe in the outro, but it's funny, purpose-built rentals, you know, from, I learned a lot about real estate by listening to a podcast called Bigger Pockets, which is out of the States. And they talk a ton about purpose-built rentals, but that's not a big thing up here, not yet anyways, right? So it's great to hear that we're having more and more purpose-built rentals and not just condos that end up on the secondary market, which, which can skew the data a little bit. So just great to hear that, You know, things are moving in the right direction on on
2: that side. Well, the purpose-built rental market, and you can get these data from the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation website. They publish estimates of it annually. It reached close to 2.1 or 2.2 million units in 2021. So it's not a it's not a small portion of the housing market in general, but you know it's you know we had this phenomenon that occurred over the nineteen nineties and twenty and the first two thousands right up to 2020. And, and really this is when baby boomers were aging in to you know their prime years of home ownership. There was tremendous demand for single detached dwellings, and cities like Ottawa, even Toronto, were sprawling outward. Right, you, this concept of urban sprawl is not something that we're unfamiliar with, and so you see these suburbs, you know, growing outwards from the city cores. And there was the demand there for, for these houses. And, you know, now there is also strong demand for, for living downtown and condominiums as a more affordable, you know, way of getting into the real estate market.
1: Yeah, I love it. I, I think you know Canada's still young in our journey with real estate and our relationship with real estate. So to see more purpose-built rentals, to see more missing middle type housing come to market is is fantastic. I think that's it for me. Unless Jeff, you got any other closing remarks? Anyone listening, guys, Stats Canada puts out a ton of amazing information, everything from rental and ownership to construction costs. Jeff, any closing remarks?
2: Yeah, you know, it may be surprising to some people to hear that this particular indicator of housing affordability improved over the five-year period, right? Where renters had more monthly income to pay for the monthly bills. I think I would point out two things, I think. And one is that That's one indicator of housing affordability that the agency at Statistics Canada puts out. We've got many other indicators of how much housing costs and how capable people are of for affording it. We have there's the consumer price index. So there are rental and homeowner components to that there is the growth in the values of dwellings that we talked about in the daily as well and we see that like in some parts of the country the growth in the values of dwellings far outpace the growth in renter income right which creates a condition for you know a, a larger challenge to accessing home ownership we've also got the canadian housing statistics program that produces price purchase price to income ratios as well. So if people are wondering, you know, how much income did I need to on average to buy a home? Well, you can look at the snapshot of what the home buyers did in a year for certain places like Ontario and British Columbia. So Really, we've presented a couple of indicators. We talked about a couple of indicators here today, but there are so many, right? And they're all pieces to this larger puzzle. So I think that's the one thing that I would say is that we've got a, a snapshot of something that happened in 2021. And so much has changed since then. We're now in a situation where interest rates have been rising. And we see, you know, the, we saw leading up to the census, a run up in, in a lot of jurisdictions of the home prices. But now there are signs that home prices are coming down in places like Toronto, Ottawa, Vancouver, but maybe rebounding soon as well. So things are always evolving. There are always new statistics that are being put out. And I think it's important to take a pulse of, of everything that's going on before making, a, making any decisions.
1: Great points. Couldn't agree more. I mean, it's hard to, you know, we've been on here for maybe 20 minutes. I didn't think we were going to have a full deep dive into the report, but great snapshot. And for anyone listening, there's there's a ton of useful information and great data points that, that can direct you to new markets to invest. in.
0: we'll post a link to the daily article that we're referencing as well in the show notes, because it's actually really ac- excellent data for people interested in real estate investing. So thanks a lot. All right. That was a, an excellent interview. I really enjoyed that one. A lot of mention of a purpose-built rental, which I know you wanted to chat about. Yeah, well, it's just, you know, I brought it up there at the end with Jeff, because again, uh, you know, people compare
1: us to bigger pockets a lot, which is one of the nicest things you could do. So thank you very much for anyone that's done that so far. But, you know, when I was listening for the last several years, purpose-built rentals is a major thing in the States. And it's just not something, I've been in the real estate business for a long time. Purpose-built rentals is not as much of a thing as it is down South. So I just want to, maybe Dan, you can take this Tell to me about what a purpose-built rental is, why it's different than a condo. Because a lot of people, if you think a condo is most likely rented, I mean, I'm I'm living, I'm in a condo right now, I'm renting, probably most other people are. So why is this not a purpose-built rental? And why is this considered a secondary rental market?
0: Yeah, I think the answer to the question is that there's a entity between you and the developer being the owner of that product. And a lot of it has to do with the way that we fundraise for structure, or sorry, the fundraising structure, or the capital market structure, or what they would call the capital stack in real estate in Canada. So a developer wants to to build a huge tower, they buy a piece of land, they entitle that land, so they get zoning on it. And now they've improved the value of it. Let's say they spent a million bucks, now the land's worth 2 million bucks, and it's zoned, so they know, okay, we're going to build 400 units on this piece of land, I'm going to go pre-sell... 300 of those 400 units. Because in order to get construction financing, I have to have a 75% pre-sale target. So I need to know before anybody's going to lend me money to build this thing, I got to know that 75% of it can be sold. That's probably the more common structure. It's not... you know for, For these condo buildings, for these tall buildings, it's not like you can build one unit at a time like you can with detached houses or one block at a time like townhouses. And so you need to have all of your revenue spoken for. And so it's harder to build these massive projects without a huge capital markets component to willing to lend or fundraise to build these. You know, Sometimes these are billion-dollar projects, but hundreds of millions of dollars in construction costs. In the US, that capital market system exists. In Canada, it's not as robust. We're starting to see it happen, but it's not nearly where it was in the States. It was interesting that the dialogue about purpose-built rental And I do think that you're starting to see it in a smaller scale in Canada, but but not at the scale that's, you know, right now it's, there is the private market that is a necessary piece of the fundraising system. Somebody has to go buy those units, pay the money for them, get the developer out of the deal. And then that person, the investor, let's call it, rents that unit out to you.
1: Yeah. Great explanation. And, you know, really, again, I think my biggest takeaway from that was that the market is in flux and very dynamic. I mean, we're looking at old stats, but wow, things things have drastically changed. Any other closing thoughts on that before we dive to
0: our last portion, of the deal of the day here? Yeah, I would just mention that on the purposeful rental stuff, CMHC plays a huge role here. Like CMHC actually provides rental construction financing. So they have this thing called the Rental... Construction Financing Initiative, which comes from the National Housing Strategy. And a lot of people I see having success with this program are actually doing smaller buildings. So you need a minimum of six units, but they'll actually finance up to 100% loan to cost of the construction project. And then CMHC also has a takeout. So your cash out refinance, let's call it, in simple terms, and they'll go up to 80% loan to value on that. And they'll also do 35 or I think even 40 year amortizations, Nick. So, a lot of people are using, so, to talk about the way that the role that CMHC plays in creating housing through the stimulation of purpose-built rental, it's that's something that investors, if you really want to get into this construction scale or even you know, the financing scale where you want to get into big portfolios, CMHC could potentially play a big role for you. So I'd look up, just Google CMHC rental construction financing or CMHC purpose-built rental. Familiarize yourself a little bit with that. We'll cover it. We'll certainly cover it exhaustively in the purpose-built rental episode that we want to do. Sweet. Thanks, Dan. Let's finish off strong here with a, this is a good one. Cause it's like
1: a deal of the day, but also a little bit of a review. So I'm going to read here and then I'm going to do our, our landlord thing on it. So this is from Tim. Hi guys. I just wanted to start by saying great job with the podcast. Lots of great information and insight. It's given me more confidence to make the leap into real estate investing. Go get them, Tim. That's what we're here for, buddy. I've seen this listing close to my home here in Grand Prairie, Alberta, and I thought it could potentially be a good deal a day for you guys. Here take a look at it. My initial thoughts are that the $240,000 is a pretty good price point. The property needs some work. I'm sure it's mostly cosmetic upstairs and a nice clean slate downstairs. I'm told that the three bedroom upstairs could probably get around $1,550 a month and a two bedroom downstairs could probably get about $1,350 a month, so about $2,900 overall. I like how the basement already has a separate entrance and the garage potentially could get a higher rent. Would take a bit of work, but to get the upstairs rented could be pretty quickly. Would love to hear your thoughts. Do you think it's worth a closer look? Tim, it's worth a closer look because I took a closer look at it and it's a nice one. Now, Tim and I went back and forth over email because this deal got me fired up and I was like, okay, well, how much is it going to cost you to put a basement suite in? You know, in my neck of the woods, it's usually about a hundred grand to do a basement conversion. He was thinking, you know, he could probably get it done for between 60, 75 grand. This is a side split. So the basement is a great height. it be partially above grade too, probably, eh? Yeah, it is. It, it's honestly, this is like a, I couldn't believe it. It's an absolutely prime, prime duplex conversion for- Sale for $240,000. So boom, I'm in landlord. I put put the address in. Property value at $240,000. I put my expected monthly rent at $2,900. I didn't even include the garage, which we possibly could have done, but we'll save that for later. I put $75,000 in improvement costs, $7,000 in closing costs. I went down to the mortgage details and made the loan to value. That's the LTV, eighty. dollars 20. So the deposit at 20% is $48,000 on a 30 year term. I did a 6% mortgage rate because, you know, that's probably where we're going. <laughs> and, Dan, this is good, man.
0: Yeah, I was just like, when you were reading the numbers to me just before, I was like, that's easily a 10 cap, eh?
1: Oh, dude, 10. <laughs> it's a 12. Yeah,
0: 123 12.3%
1: cap, 12% cash on cash return, and a 10% gross yield net annual cash flow $15,000 in your first year. So the only thing that lags in the first year is your ROI. That's because you've put a bunch of money into it for the renovations, but you know, in the 10-year term it is you know, you're over a 2x equity multiple and you're almost at a, an 11 and a half IRR. So really solid investment.
0: I mean, look, it is. It's not a bad investment on paper. The question is, I mean, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, right? So what, if I'm advising somebody, what's the question here? First thing I did when you hit me with it. What's the residential vacancy rate in Grand Prairie? 12.5%, right? So when you, when you get these ones that sound really good, you got to know that there's going to be a bit of a catch. And the catch is, in a lot of cases, that they're not exceptionally easy to occupy and you are assuming some vacancy risk. So statistically, if you were to run that back, how many months of the year are you losing to rent if you're modeling that 12.5% vacancy, right? You want to know how good you are at this? This is
1: almost upsetting. So I just changed the occupancy rate from 95 percent to 80% which is more accurate which takes that cap rate from 12 and a half to 10 so there you go it's a 10 gap after <laughs> I've all i've done this once or twice yeah sounds like it anyway folks thanks so much for listening just one last piece we have events coming up in calgary it is our first time doing these live events there'll be a ton more next year but we're dipping our toes in we've teamed up with cash and homes and kelvert kelvert is a mick they're a cool mic that's specialized on burrs too. Oh yeah. And
0: we're looking forward to what is it. It's to the 24th and the 26th, yeah. I believe, right, Dan? Yeah. yeah. November 24th is Calgary. And then November 26th is Edmonton. Edmonton's almost already hit capacity. So I'm trying to get a bigger room, to be honest with you. Calgary, we haven't even actually like a formally launched yet. But follow, follow me and Nick on social media. They're all on meetup.com as well. And we'll post links in the show notes for all of you. So we'd love to see you there, get to meet some of our listeners, talk about deals, shoot the shit. We'll be doing a panel. So I can't wait to see you all. Yeah. Love it. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Talk to you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Investor is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317 and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial
1: and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.